On this episode of the AST Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss some observations from John's visit to the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's 2022 Annual Education Conference and Trade Show. We discuss required risk assessments and how to make sure they're properly summarized. And in our focus segment, we discuss the regulatory requirements for pharmacy and interview pharmacy consultant Victor Alves about recent survey experiences related to pharmacy. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights. And Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 175 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for November 17th, 2022. We're recording from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on the information available as of the date of recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory, accreditation, and finance issues. So we've achieved another milestone, episode 175, Sue. Before you know it, we'll be at episode 200. Uh, we have uh, almost uh, 45,000 downloads and 318 followers. And next year, we'll begin our sixth year, which is really hard to believe. Uh, and we just want to thank all of our loyal listeners. Uh, the, the numbers keep growing pretty dramatically. Of course, we, we really came into the mainstream after the uh, COVID, uh, but uh, we still continue to grow quite a bit. And of course, with the addition of all of our virtual conferences and our boot camps, uh, we are uh, indeed a, a major force in the industry. So again, thank you to all of our loyal listeners for making us, uh, helping us make it to 175 episodes. And Sue, we're still on vacation. Um, uh, we, we're using air quotes for that vacation down in Hilton Head, a lovely uh, villa here. And uh, we have this uh, mini studio with our fancy new, it's not a new board. It's one of the boards that we used in our studio that we took out of commission in the studio because we bought a brand new one. And now this is a pretty nice board for the road, but we're still learning how to use it. Uh, poor Sue had to do the editing of the last episode, which we had a a little bit of sound problems with, but hopefully it wasn't uh, disturbing for our listeners. So um, again, we'll be here for a couple more days and then heading back to our, the cold weather. Uh, we're kind of laughing at all of our, our homebodies who are uh, enjoying the snow while we're, uh, well, we got some relatively cold weather down here, but. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're not laughing at them because we're heading back there <laughs> that's very right, soon. Probably through a snowstorm. And yeah, it's not, not as warm as it usually is here this 
time yeah. of year, but it's been nice for walking around or, or biking and that kind of thing. Just hanging around, eating some good uh, seafood here. Uh-huh. So, At the last episode, I was going to talk about my Washington State Association visit, but uh, didn't have uh, time, so I thought we'd talk a little bit about that today. The 2022 Annual Education Conference and Trade Show of the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association was held November 3rd and 4th, 2022, and I had the pleasure of visiting with them at the Tulalip Resort and Spa. Beautiful location, great venue, great people that I met. I've had corresponded with quite a number of them afterwards because everybody keeps asking me for copies of the governance, uh, for example, minutes uh, from a presentation I did there. We did not uh, have an opportunity to interview anyone this year at the conference. Uh, it's a new venue for us, and uh, we have been talking to them about perhaps having a special episode in the future. So uh, hopefully that'll happen. But I did want to talk about a couple uh, things that came up during some of the sessions. First of all, Sue, one of the the uh, highlights for me was um, Bill Prentice talking. Now, Bill and I are on the same speaking circuit, so we see each other quite a bit. Uh, but he uh, he told a uh, a joke. Um, which is kind of unusual for Bill that he hasn't told anywhere else. And Bill started by saying, hey, did, did I tell you that I was arrested in Washington, D.C. For, for impersonating a congressman? And uh, he says, uh, you know, that he told the police officer, uh, what are you talking about? I was just sitting here doing nothing. Now, if I had applause. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm like, oh, I'm the only one here to laugh. That's right. <laughs> but I did think that was kind of amusing. So anyway, especially in uh, politics season, voting season, so... Bill pointed out a few things that we haven't mentioned before on the podcast, especially related to the CMS uh, 2023 final uh, rule that came out on November 1st. And one of the things he pointed out is that the change in the administration has resulted in a change in the attitude about the procedures list. Uh, The prior administration or the Trump administration, CMS was heading in the direction of eliminating the inpatient only list, which would have uh, hopefully over time gradually allowed us to do more and more procedures. And and if that had happened, basically CMS was saying, we're allowing the doctors to decide what would be the most appropriate venue for surgery. Uh, The current administration has reversed that decision based upon pressure from the hospitals who have been concerned about the movement of cases out of the hospital and into ambulatory surgery centers. So that's why the 2023 payment rule does uh, remove that uh, movement away from the inpatient-only list. And, of course, as we talked about last episode, there were only, what was it, four new procedures added to this last year. So that was very disappointing. Uh, And I think we can expect this to continue for the next few years. Now, it is important to note that this doesn't mean that you can't do those procedures that are not included on the approved payment list for Medicare. Uh, It just means that you're not going to get paid by Medicare for them and or any payers that use that Medicare list. Quite a few of them do, don't they? That's correct, especially in the orthopedics area. Mm -hmm. A lot of the total joints do allow those procedures to be performed there. So, uh, you know, so I know over time, you and I have talked about this, that there is some confusion, and we. I just kind of want to make it clear that uh, the Medicare approved list doesn't mean that those are the only procedures, as I said, mm-hmm. that can be done in an ASC. You know, we don't have that level of restriction now. It just means that Medicare is not going to pay for it. And to that end, let's just reiterate something we did say last week. The CMS final 2023 uh, HOPD and ASC rates fix the rates for Medicare fee for service payers. But the reason it's important for all of us, even organizations that don't do Medicare cases, yeah is that many third-party payers actually use that same system. Mm-hmm. They may pay what Medicare pays or say, well, we'll do 10% above Medicare right. or something like that. Or if you're lucky, 30% you know? or, yeah. or more But it than is that. somehow based on that. That's yeah. correct. 
And, you know, the other thing that uh, Bill kind of pointed out is that we, and we understand this, CMS really doesn't understand ambulatory surgery centers, nor do they really appreciate the amount of money that we save the Medicare program and could save the Medicare program if more Medicare cases were to move out of the ambulatory, out of the hospital into the ambulatory surgery center. Because remember, we get paid about half of what the hospital gets paid for. So, that means that not only is the Medicare program paying more for some of these procedures that are being done in the hospital, but so are the patients who are paying, you know, 20% co-pays. So uh, we, we hope that, you know, that there can be some more pressure on the current Congress to start moving in a different direction. And part of the problem is that we don't have anyone on MedPAC. Now, MedPAC is a committee of Congress that does research and reports a couple times a year on the Medicare payment program. We've talked about MedPAC in the, in the past. MedPAC issues two reports a year, and MedPAC quite clearly states that they believe that ambulatory surgery centers are being overpaid, and they they have suggested since as long as I can remember uh, that there be no pay increases for uh, ambulatory surgery centers. In other words, no cost of living adjustments or uh, mm-hmm. adjustments to the Medicare rates each year. And the reason for this is that there really is no representative from the ASC industry. The ASC Association continues to uh, try to lobby to uh, to get people added to that, but they've been unsuccessful. Uh, and MedPAC even goes so far as to uh, propose that ambulatory surgery centers prepare annual cost reports, just like uh, most of the other payers out there. Uh, I'm sorry, most of the other uh, uh, providers out there, like hospitals, nursing homes, home health agencies. Uh, and it, and you know the only state in the country that actually requires cost reports is New York, and that isn't for Medicare purposes; it's for Medicaid. So luckily, CMS doesn't take the advice of MedPAC and uh, with regard to the pay increases or the cost reports. Uh, and part of the reason is because ASC Association has been a has developed a really good relationship with CMS and can hold off some of those recommendations. So I uh, I just thought I would add that uh, comment that we really didn't talk about last uh, in our last episode. And the second, uh, uh, I, I want to talk about another speaker there, Matt Jones. He was uh, the first speaker. Uh, I was the second speaker, Sue. So I had to follow, had to follow a motivational us. speaker uh, and and somebody that got people up and you know were moving around. And he was he was uh, he had a whole bunch of uh, of comments. Now I'll put a link to his website. He is uh, he's interesting. He talks about his inspiring life experiences of overcoming cancer three times when doctors did not think he would live and surviving a bone marrow transplant, relearning how to walk and completing seven marathons in seven continents. He was a great guy. He was a great speaker, really had people moving. And he did a speech. The title of the speech was ambulatory surgery is a marathon, how to stay motivated. And I thought that was a great title. Um, And one of the comments that he made during his uh, speech is how grateful he was for nurses and doctors for not giving up on him and continuing to, uh, to try to find ways to treat him. I'm only going to say one of the quotes that, that he uh, had, he had many during the the conference uh, during his session. And it's, and I thought this was kind of interesting, Sue. It says, it's not what happens to you. It's how you perceive it. It's not what happens to you. It's how you perceive it. It really comes down to the attitude you have about those life experiences. And, you know, as a, as a minister, I think I, I, I try to get this point across, but I thought his, uh, of course, I tend to be a lot wordier than anybody else's. Sue will, will uh, definitely um, agree with. Uh, but I just thought that was a very simple phrase. So just kind of remember that. It's not what happens to you, it's how you perceive it. And, and take that, you know, take that and try to find it, have a good attitude about everything that happens, recognizing that, you know, we live a life that's going to have both good times and bad times. And it's how we get through it, how we perceive it, that we, uh, 
uh, we, we move on. So I'm going to put a link to that on the, the website. Sue, do you want to go into uh, some of the recent news? February 27th to March 1st, 2023 is ASCA's National Advocacy Day. And I know you just mentioned some of the benefits we get from ASCA and their interaction with the government. If you are interested in meeting with a member of Congress or their staff to educate them on the benefits of ASCs, you can register with ASCA. Um, you do have to be a member to do that. But they'll be hosting a webinar to help you prepare for um, taking a trip to Capitol Hill at, at that time. And I've, I've done this uh, when I was, uh, before I became a consultant, I did mm-hmm. this actually quite a bit uh, back in the 90s. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a great exercise. It's a good it's a good opportunity to kind of see how our government works, too, because sometimes you really, you know, first of all, ASCA does a great job of explaining, you know, uh, what these visits are. The people, un- unlike what you would expect, I guess, is that the people that you meet with really do want to meet with you. And you're going to be meeting with representatives from your own community, wherever you you live or your surgery center is, uh, talking to them about what an ambulatory surgery center is, a call to action, you know, for some legislation that we have pending uh, and just develop a relationship. You never know when, you know, that, uh, you know, once you meet with them and give them their card, you might be able to call them up on the phone for, for things that are unrelated to even what the ASCA is talking about. I've done that over the years where I've had to call, you know, a congressperson, uh, you know, regarding some issues that were happening in our center or in our community. And I think if you're, you know, we're all so deeply into it, but people that haven't been in the industry don't always have any idea really what ASCs do or, or what the benefit is or, or anything like that. So it's great when we can kind of pass on that knowledge. Yeah. And I, I remember meeting with somebody, I'm certainly not going to mention who the name of this congressperson was, but their office says, now let me understand this ambulatory surgery. Is that, that means you're doing surgery in the back of an ambulance. And, and you know, of course you can't make mm-hmm. that stuff up. Uh, yeah, and, but- and again, we, we hear that a lot. Whenever people see my, you know, logo, for example, they, mm-hmm. they, they see the ambulatory part yeah. and they just assume that we work just with an ambulance service. And just <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, you know, in seriousness, if, if bills come up or different things, why are they even going to have it register in their mind that they want to pay attention to it yeah. if they don't think it's, it's really useful? And in Becker's Spine Review um, today, there was a study they talked about a, a study that was conducted by researchers from George Washington University Hospital and Washington Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, which are both in Washington, D.C., on complication rates in cervical disc replacement procedures in outpatient versus inpatient settings. And they found no significant differences um, in post-op complications in the multi-level um, CDR or, or um, cervical disc replacements. And they actually found that single-level CDRs had lower odds of decompressive laminectomy after one year in the outpatient setting. So, you know, they didn't separate outpatient hospital with ambulatory surgery center. As these studies build up, it's just going to only help our, our cause. And our of. argument that mm-hmm. it is a safe environment. Yeah. yeah. At least a safe, sometimes safer. And in our last episode, we talked about the physician Medicare payment reductions. And we just wanted to mention some of the possible ramifications of that. Yeah. So as I think we mentioned last time, it was over 4%, 4.5%, somewhere around there, reduction in the amount of money that physicians are going to be receiving for doing Medicare cases. Mm -hmm. And again, that, like we just mentioned, that will affect other other insurances as well, probably that that base it on Medicare rates. So reduced uh, Medicare patients' access to physicians as fewer physicians decide to participate in Medicare. And I know it can be really hard for people already to find Medicare participating Depending physicians in certain areas. Yeah. Yep. 
And even moving away from Medicare won't help that much. You know, some, some of the physicians might choose to do that, but as we mentioned, many private insurance companies follow the Medicare uh, payment and may pay the same rate or, you know, a slightly higher reimbursement, but based on that. And more physicians will have to move to larger health systems and hospitals, which can affect our case volume in the ASCs because they're, they're definitely seeing yeah, as employed, that could be a trend. Right. As employed physicians are forced to bring their or take their cases to the hospital or to the hospital outpatient department, uh, they wouldn't be able to come to the ASC. Which, of course, just all the way around, you know, kind of does the opposite of what they want. They want to pay them less to maybe save money, but then they're forcing patients to go to a higher cost care. Yeah. Well, it's all about the hospitals. You know, the hospitals want to, you know, generate higher revenue. And by, by bringing the doctor in there, they'll get more revenue, but of course it'll cost the Medicare system more. So it's kind of, it's not very smart. It's not a a good long range plan, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. And even if the doctors continue to accept Medicare, the reduced pay may affect whether they can buy new equipment or extra staff and, you know, that will directly affect patient care the more they're struggling to just make, kind of maintain their numbers. And make uh, wait the long wait list even longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the timing of this is so difficult because, you know, the providers as well as other healthcare workers have all just gotten, not all the way through, but we've, you know, really struggled through the pandemic. And now, you know, facing so much staff shortage and the provider shortages as well. And then you add inflation on top of that. And it's just... Really, it's kind of uh, just an extra blow that the health system doesn't need. Yeah, and and we can't expect the physicians to, I mean, it's going to have an impact on their ability to hire people. They're not going to have the money to be able to to offer higher salaries. And and again, the whole impact for us in the surgery industry is that it it could result in a reduction in our case volume Mm -hmm. or... Uh, you know, as doctors move into the uh, into a hospital environment, uh, uh, a decrease in the demand for house for ambulatory surgery services. So, one of the things that has been uh, coming up recent, just talking about some recent experiences, is the issue of uh, risk assessments keeps coming up. We had this discussion during one of our Saturday drop-in sessions with our patron members of the podcast. So, I thought I would go through the different types of risk assessments that are required. I think. Uh, uh, and I'm finding this even when I'm doing a survey that often uh, one of two things happens or both um, that uh, they don't know all the risk assessments they need to do. Mm-hmm. Or if they do the risk assessment, they just fill out the form without actually doing anything with that information. It's going to sound like an overwhelming list. And maybe we'll point out who in the organization might be responsible for some of these. Cause I know in our company, we have certain people that, you know, become expert in, in right. some of these areas that can you know, address some of the issues that everybody may not know about. So let's just go down the list. And one point I make too, is that we do have example copies of this that are available. If you're a patron member of the podcast, there's a, uh, um, there's a whole database of forms that is available to our patron members. And again, if you're interested in a patron membership, go to ASCpodcast.com. So let's just go down that list. Uh, the first one is a hazard vulnerability assessment, which is uh, better often known as HVA or hazard vulnerability assessment. And this has to be done annually. And this is where you'll look at both internal and external emergency type situations, possible disasters or or uh, hazards that can occur to your organization. And we had to add pandemic to that. We did. I mean, I think we... we had that type of thing, but you know, it was very, very low on the rating scale until... You know, suddenly it happened. And and I've joked about this uh, during some of our uh, boot camps where we've talked about how I remember in 2019, uh, you know, we were meeting as a group and 
everybody said, what about a pandemic? Would that ever occur? And I still remember saying, well, I think it's a higher risk of a uh, active shooter situation mm-hmm. than a pandemic. So it might actually be my fault. Um, it could be. Pandemic occurred. Uh, but a HVA needs to be filled out on an annual basis. Usually you want to do this in cooperation with you know, your facilities person who might know about the type of equipment that you might have some problems with, as well as taking a hard look at your community and the types of disasters that might occur, external disasters. Now, here's the problem that I find with these HVAs. First of all, the most popular version of the HVA tends to be the Kaiser Permanente version, uh, which comes in a spreadsheet where you score things. Mm -hmm. And all too often, I'll go in and I'll do a mock survey or a survey, you know, with the accreditation organization, And all that I see is an HVA that has been completed with no analysis. It just has these numbers. Mm -hmm. And if you know how it works, there's a score at the end. And the higher the score, the higher that risk is of Mm -hmm. that particular disaster. Number one, occurring. Number two, not being prepared for. Number Mm -hmm. three, not having drills. So those all work in conjunction with each other. It might be a high risk of something. But if you're very prepared for it, then the number's not as high. That's correct. And those numbers are going to change every year. Mm -hmm. Because let's say that you did, maybe you've identified pandemic as a major risk because you weren't prepared for it. But then, you know, you've gone through it, you've drilled, you've put all these precautions in place, you have great policies. Policies are are one of those elements. Then what you're going to find is that the next year, it's going to drop down, but something else might have popped up. Maybe you didn't do any drills in the last year on uh, incapacitated provider. Um, And, you know, so it's time to do that. So as you're not, you know, you have to pick and choose the types of drills you're going to do each year. So it's very important that when you're filling out the HVA that you uh, have an analysis of what the results are, a narrative analysis where you discuss what your findings were. The second one is probably one of those that we know the best. It's the ICRA or the Infection Control Risk Assessment. Uh, The infection control risk assessment has to be done every year. This is done by your infection control coordinator, which, remember, is appointed by the governing body into that position. Uh, And again, same thing with this. There are are a lot of different models out there. I'm not going to name anyone in particular because I, I like them all, actually, depending upon your organization. But it's extremely important, even more important with the infection control risk assessment, to have a narrative uh, of this that discusses what you found and what your goals and objectives. So one of the outcomes of the infection control risk assessment is the goals and objectives for the next year for your infection control program, as well as any changes to your your policies and procedures, and you're going to outline those. We're going to talk about, uh, and Sue, remind me at the end that we need to remember you know, how we document this in the minutes of the, of the various organizations. Uh, kind of ancillary to the infection control risk assessment is the infection control construction and renovation risk assessment. Anytime you do construction or renovation, uh, you're going to want to do this risk assessment to determine what types of mitigations you're going to have to do, You know whether you're going to have to uh, wall off certain areas of your organization in order to avoid any contaminants getting you know from the construction uh, getting into the surgery center. So anytime that you have construction, you will have to do this risk assessment. And we as surveyors have actually a specific line item for making sure even if you didn't have any construction, we have to ask you whether you have a form, whether you have a process in place for doing an infection control construction and renovation risk assessment. The next item is something that is generally not very well known, and that's a chemical risk assessment. And this is an OSHA requirement. 
Uh, we actually, uh, when we, we actually brought a, an uh, OSHA an expert into our team in the last year, and he's the one that, uh, he used to do this, he used to work for uh, Johnson & Johnson, and he was in charge of doing some of these uh, chemical risk assessments each uh, year for his, uh, in his job. Uh, so again, you have to do a chemical risk assessment to determine what chemicals, you basically outline all of the chemicals in your organization, especially the, uh, the hazardous ones, and then put together this risk assessment to determine uh, how you would protect your staff from uh, any contamination from that. Uh, one of the more popular risk assessments, best, better known one, is the NFPA 99 risk assessment. This is an, a risk assessment that's not necessarily completed every year, but you do want to uh, review at any time you bring on new equipment. And what this does is it goes through all of the equipment, both fixed and, and major movable equipment that you have in your organization, and assesses the risk that that equipment would break down and what the impact would be on your organization or on your patients or on your staff. And then based upon that, you develop you know safety protocols. The best example I'll give you for an NFPA 99 risk assessment, we, we actually all know it, even if you haven't filled one out, you actually know it because it's the one that tells us that we have to test our battery uh, backup lights. We have to test our emergency exit lights. We have to make sure that the uh, aisleways are clear. You know, the exit pathways are clear in your organization. All of those are a risk that would be identified as part of the NFPA 99 risk assessment. Um, and as I said, it doesn't necessarily have to be done every year, but every time you bring on new equipment, you'd want to adjust it. Then there's one of my least favorite. It's the high-tech risk assessment. This is a uh, HIPAA risk assessment for your electronics, your computers, your internet connections. Um, now, this is not also, this just like the NFPA 99, is not necessarily done every year, uh, but it does need to be updated every year based upon any changes in your computer system. Now, I'll be honest with you, with the high-tech risk assessment, this is not something that the average administrator or nurse manager uh, can can do. Usually you have to hire an IT company to do this risk assessment. I'm just going to warn you, it's a very expensive uh, process, depending upon how complex your system is. And again, same thing with the uh, NF, with all of those risk assessments we've talked about earlier. We need to make sure that when you're completing these, you do an analysis of it to determine what the outcome is. What are you going to change? Um, in the high-tech risk assessment, for example, there's certain risks that we just can't completely eliminate. And one of the conclusions is that, well, we have insurance in order to cover ourselves for that risk. And then there's the TB, tuberculosis uh, risk assessment. Uh, if you're not doing a PPD testing on your employees on a regular basis, then you're going to be doing a TB risk assessment, which is an overall risk assessment. And then the employees would be filling out a, an annual form regarding uh, their risk of TB. And again, this is a very important part. This is a question that all of us surveyors ask for every year when we're looking at an organization that doesn't do PPDs every year. The wet room assessment is the next one. If you don't have GFCI circuits or uh, line isolation monitoring circuits in each of your operating rooms, you're going to have to do a wet room, room assessment. And there's a number of tools out there. ASHRAE has one that tends to be the most popular. And the, the reason for this is you want to identify whether there's a chance or a high risk of water standing in the ground or people being electrocuted because of standing water or, or moisture in a surgery center. We know that there are a number of procedures that do involve quite a bit of fluid loss uh, onto the floor, which could present a hazard to uh, a, an employee or the patient uh, in the center or in the operating room. And again, if you're interested in these forms and would like to become a patron member of the ASC podcast, you can download examples of each of these uh, assessments. Uh, all you need to do is follow the link in the show notes to become a patron member today. 
And it's important to remember that you have to analyze the situation and make a conclusion for each of those risk assessments, every one of them. Don't just fill out the form. I'm not looking as a surveyor to make sure that you filled out the form. I want to make sure you did something. I just did a survey recently, a great organization, but one of the problems they had is that their infection control risk assessment was incomplete. There were actually columns not completed and there was no analysis and it was not used as part of the infection control goals and objectives that were established in the revisions to the, to the uh, infection control plan. And then lastly, uh, on this subject, I do want to point out that all of these risk assessments should be brought to the Quality Improvement Committee and some of them to the governing body as appropriate and as required by the conditions for coverage and the accreditation requirements. So the best way to make sure all of these are done is if you're using a template for your quality improvement program, just make sure on an annual basis, at least once a year, you review each of those risk assessments and the conclusions and you'll be in good shape. And let's take a short break. After our break, we'll come back and we're going to talk about our focus segment today, which is pharmacy management and recent pharmacy issues identified during surveys. It's been a long day and the surveyor has just left and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all of the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambitory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. So this episode, we're going to talk about pharmacy management. And as we always do when we're talking about any of the regulatory areas, we want to go back to the CMS conditions for coverage and the interpreted guidelines. And in this case, the conditions for coverage for pharmaceutical services fall under 416.48 of the conditions for coverage. And again, I'm, I'm assuming everybody knows how to get a copy of the conditions for coverage and the interpreted guidelines, but they will be in the show notes here. So 416.48. Sue, go ahead. The ASC must provide drugs and biologicals in a safe and effective manner in accordance with accepted professional practice and under the direction of an individual designated responsible for pharmaceutical service. So that last piece tends to get some people confused. So there is a, a thought or many organizations feel that, the, uh, that the, the phrase under the direction of an individual designated responsible for pharmaceutical services means a pharmacy consultant. And 
uh, and that's not the case. It usually is going to be the individual. If you're in a state where uh, uh, you have to use a uh, medical director's or a mm-hmm. chief of anesthesia's license to purchase your drugs. The DEA license. The, the right? DEA yeah. license. Generally, that is going to be the individual that is going to be in charge of pharmaceutical services. And the reason for that is because if their name is on the license, it, you know, they're going to want to be in charge of that. Mm-hmm. So make sure you identify that individual that the uh that the governing body minutes reflect the appointment of that individual to the pharmaceutical services uh, to be in charge of the pharmaceutical services. And moving on to the interpretive guidelines, I'm, and I'm not going to read all of these things. I just want to point out some of the, the areas that, um, that are, are noted here. So drugs and biologicals used within ASC must be provided safely and in an effective manner, consistent with generally accepted professional standards of pharmaceutical practice and with the requirements uh, specified in the standards within the condition. So what they're referring to there is that it's, it, you, in order to identify all of the regulations that apply or the standards that apply to pharmaceutical services in the ASC, you don't just stop at the CS, CMS conditions for coverage. You're going to have to look at certain other organizations. For example, USP 797, uh, which is uh, published by the United States Pharmacopeia. Um, that USP organization is very authoritative and, and their uh, standards are used as part of the, the survey process. And again, the interpretive guidelines do state specifically the ASC must designate a specific licensed healthcare professional provide direction to the ASC's pharmaceutical service. And as I said, usually that's going to be the medical director or, or whoever's license is used for purchasing it. That next line is important too. That individual must be routinely present when the ASC is open for business, but continuous presence is not required. So uh, again, that does not necessarily mean that this person is there all the time, but they have to be there on a regular basis. I also want to point out some of the survey procedures uh, so that sometimes is a good lesson for, you know, what is a surveyor going to uh, ask for when they come in? So the survey procedures for 416.48 states, that the surveyor is going to ask the ASC's leadership for evidence that the qualified individual has been designated. So they're going to be looking at the governing body minutes to see that designation. And they are they are told that they should ask how often and for how long this individual is actually on site at the ambulatory surgery center. And they're also going to be looking for documentation indicating that the individual is providing active direction and oversight of the program. So again, those are the survey procedures for that. And 416.48 the standard of administration of drugs. Drugs must be prepared and administered according to established policies and acceptable standards of practice. So let's focus on that accepted professional practice and acceptable standards of practice. And the interpretive guidelines state that acceptable, accepted professional practice and acceptable standards of practice means that drugs and biologicals are handled and provided in the ASC in accordance with applicable state and federal laws as well as with standards established by organizations with nationally recognized expertise in the clinical use of drugs and biologicals. And that would include organizations such as the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, ISMP, which we know very well, mm-hmm. and the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. So those uh, those are, uh, if you're often in your policies and procedures, you're going to be referring to those standards there. And the, the interpretive guidelines go on to state, the ASC must have policies and procedures designed to promote medication administration consistent with the acceptable standards of practice. And it goes on to state that the policies and procedures should address in, uh, issues including, but not limited to the following. So make sure when you're going uh, through your policy and procedure manual that you have each of these things identified. And so why don't we just go back and forth? So the first one <laughs> is a physician or other qualified member of the medical staff acting within their scope of practice 
must issue an order for all drugs or biologicals administered in the ASC. And the administration of the drugs or biologicals must be uh, by or under the supervision of nursing or other personnel in accordance with applicable laws, standards of practice, and ASC policies. And following the manufacturer's label, including the storing of drugs and biologicals as directed, disposing of expired medications in a timely manner, using single-dose vials of medication for one ASC patient only, etc. Avoiding preparation of medications too far in advance of their use. For example, while it may appear efficient to pre-draw the evening before all medications that will be used for surgery scheduled the following day, this practice may, depending on the particular drug or biological, promote loss of integrity, stability, or security of the medication. And any pre-filled syringes must be initialed by the person who draws it, dated and timed to indicate when they were drawn, and labeled as to both content and expiration date. And, of course, employing standard infection control practices when using injectable medications. So now we're quoting the uh, interpretive guidelines for 416.48a, and as Sue said, that's the standard for administration of drugs. I think this is probably one of the most important sections of the CMS conditions for coverage because when I think back to those um, surveys that I do when I'm analyzing the, uh, the pharmacy area, it is these interpretive guidelines that I tend to find most frequently have violations or citations for. Yeah, that single use and the labeling and th- those are big ones. That's right. Okay. And, and again, um, you know, sometimes what we find anesthesiologists, I love them. They're very good friends of mine, but they do tend to uh, to not label those things very well. Or they, they, they draw up the syringe. They say, I'm going to use it right away, but they put it down for even a second. Yeah, or it's a very recognizable <laughs> drug. So how could they mistake it? But it doesn't right. matter. It does not matter what it is. Um, and again, also remember USP 797, at least as at, we're sitting here today in November of 2022, USP 797 says that you can't draw up any medications more than an hour beforehand. So if your physicians are making an argument, oh, don't worry, the instructions for use tell me differently, it doesn't matter. The USP 797 states otherwise. So, and then moving on, it, uh, the interpretive guidelines also talk about uh, the records of receipt and disposition of all drugs listed in the schedules two, three, four, and five. Um, if the ASC uses any of those scheduled drugs, the ASC policies and procedures should address the following. Accountability procedures to ensure control of the distribution, use, and disposition of all scheduled drugs. Records of the receipt and disposition of all scheduled drugs must be current and must be accurate, and records to trace the movement of scheduled drugs throughout the ASC. And again, these are areas that we do tend to find problems with. Pharmacy consultants bring it up every once in a while where they find that the records have been incomplete or they're Mm -hmm. only signed off by one individual. Usually it tends to be in situations where drugs have been wasted and the documentation has been incomplete. The licensed healthcare professional who has been designated responsible for the ASC's pharmaceutical services is responsible for determining that all drug records are in order and that an account of all scheduled drugs is maintained and reconciled. And again, this tends to be, in my view, one of those situations in which the doctor who has been appointed, sometimes, by the way, he might not even know he's been appointed as the uh, director of pharmaceutical services, but the situation uh, that we find uh, often is that they don't realize that, and then if something happens, if drugs disappear, Mm -hmm. it is that individual that is going to be responsible for for explaining what happened. Uh, So it really is important that your director of pharmaceutical services, whoever that physician is, 
uh, is well aware of his responsibilities, has an opportunity to review the, the, uh, the drug records to make sure that all that is complete. And please make sure that he gets a copy of the pharmacy consultant report. And the record system delineated in, in policies and procedures tracks movement of all scheduled drugs from the point of entry into the ASC to the point of departure, either through administration to the patient, destruction, or return to the manufacturer. The system provides documentation on scheduled drugs in a readily retrievable manner to facilitate reconciliation of the receipt and disposition of all scheduled drugs. Now, it doesn't require that these records be computerized uh, and paper records are fine. Just make sure that you don't lose any of those, that you archive all that and keep those records for a long time. And all drug records are in order and an account of all scheduled drugs is maintained and any discrepancies in count are reconciled promptly. We need to to look at that and, and move very quickly whenever there is a, uh, a miscount or an issue with the drug count. And then it does point out the interpretive guidelines continue by saying the ASC system has to be capable of readily identifying loss or diversion of all controlled substances in such a manner as to minimize, minimize the time frame between the actual loss or diversion to the time of detection and determination of the extent or loss or diver, diversion. So, uh, and we know that we have a drug problem now. We know that, you know, diversion has uh, apparently increased in the last couple of years. Um, and we need to be uh, very careful in our organization where we, we tend to trust everybody, you know, because we know all of the employees, we know all of the techs in that organization. But you need to have a system in place to make sure that those are are properly maintained. You know, Sue, one of the things I find an awful lot is when I walk into the operating room, drugs just left out. You know, the anesthesiologist leaves to, to discharge a patient, leaves the drugs out or doesn't lock the, um, um, the anesthesia cart. Uh, or they leave the cabinet with the, um, uh, the propofol open. Uh, or, you know, syringes of propofol are left on the, uh, on the counter. Again, all of those things have to be properly secured against diversion. The surveyors uh, are going to ask a number of things. So this is what they're going to look for. They're, they're going to try to de determine whether there's evidence in the medical records of the, uh, the administration of the drugs, the order signed by a physician or any other qualified practitioner for every drug or biological administered to the patients. They're going to check to see if all drugs and uh, biologicals administered, administered are only administered by nurses or other qualified professionals. Oh, and they're also going to determine whether the medications are properly labeled, stored, and have not expired. So again, all of those things are, are issues that we tend to identify uh, very frequently during the survey. And they're and, also going to look at the infection control survey tool to determine whether the ASC employs safe injection practices. And I will link a copy of the most recent infection control survey tool in the show notes here because it really is something. I don't know how re recently I updated that, Sue, on the website uh, or on the show notes, so I'll make sure that we do that. Uh, and then it really is important that the infection control coordinator goes through that tool, which the surveyors will use in determining your compliance with the infection control practices. And moving on to 416.48a, administration of drugs. One, adverse reactions must be reported to the physician responsible for the patient and must be documented in the record. So this is a, an intuitive um, standard. I think mm -hmm. most people understand it. I don't tend to find problems with this during survey, but so we'll go through it very quickly. So the interpretive guidelines say that every adverse re reaction to a drug or biological, and by the way, you know, kind of 
pointing, putting this in perspective, remember, anytime you have an adverse uh, reaction, make sure that you do an incident report on it. So every adverse uh, reaction to a drug or biological that a patient experiences while in the ASC must be reported promptly to the physician on the ASC's medical staff who is responsible for that patient. And all adverse drug reactions experienced by patients while in the ASC must also be documented in the medical record. And the policies and procedures must incorporate these requirements and staff must be aware of and comply with them. And this should be something that you educate your staff on an annual basis about. And during the survey, the, uh, the surveyors are going to quiz the clinical staff and ask them what steps they would take if a patient experiences an adverse reaction. So make sure your, your, your staff are well aware of that. And they're going to look for documentation of any adverse drug reactions in that sample of records that they select for review. And then they're also going to look at the policies and procedures to make sure that they do address adverse drug reactions and are consistent with the regulatory requirements. The next is 416.48a. Standard Administration of Drugs. Item 3. Orders given orally for drugs and biologicals must be followed by a written order and signed by the prescribing physician. So again, and and I know, Sue, you as a nurse know this uh, from your, your training that uh, you, oral uh, orders are acceptable, but they must be read back to the, the physician, uh, and then they must be followed by a written order and it has to be signed by that prescribing physician. And the interpretive guidelines actually go into that. The orders for drugs and biologicals that are transmitted as oral spoken communications between the prescribing physician and the ASC's nursing staff uh, or delivered either face-to-face or via telephone, commonly referred to as verbal orders, must be followed by a written order that is signed by the prescribing physician. So you can get that if they're mm-hmm. if they're back the next time, then have them sign it then or, or get it through... Uh, do we use fax machines anymore? Uh, however, electronically, you get that order back. <laughs> and CMS expects ASC policy, policies and procedures for verbal orders to include a readback and verification process whereby the nurse receiving the order repeats it back to the prescribing physician who then verifies that it is correct. And when administering a drug or biological per verbal order, the nurse should include in the medical record entry covering the administration of the drug or biological a note that it was prescribed orally, indicating the name of the prescribing physician. And that prescribing physician must sign, date, and the and time the written order. Make sure you have that time in there, the written order in the patient's medical record confirming that verbal order. And this should be done as soon as possible after the verbal order is issued. And in the ASC setting, medications prescribed for patients in recovery present a particular area of vulnerability in terms of the potential failure to follow up a verbal order with a written order signed by the prescribing physician because that often that physician has left uh, the organization. So careful attention must be given to compliance with the regulatory requirement for medications administered during, you know, during the recovery period. Mm-hmm. And they might not come back, you know, for some time mm-hmm. uh, afterwards, as we know. So the surveyors are going to ask, uh, you know, does the ASC have policies and procedures that address these verbal orders? They're going to want to see that in writing. And does it require the prescribing pr- practitioner to sign date and time that order as soon as possible after issuing that verbal order. And they're also going to look at the policies and procedures for verbal orders that would require read back and verify process and where the nurse who receives it repeats it back to the prescribing physician to verify that it was understood accurately. And the surveyors are going to ask the nursing staff how they handle verbal orders. Do the, does their practice conform to the regulatory requirements and do they use the read back and verify? And they'll be observing, of course, nurses perhaps uh, taking verbal orders. And this just points out, again, the fact that you have to educate your staff on all of these policies because sometimes it kind of stops with making the policy, okay, we're following 
all of what we need to do, but then you have to make sure everybody is well aware of it. And we're actually doing uh, episode 176, which we're going to record just after this one, is going to be a staff edition that will go through those requirements and uh, at, you know for the staff. So remember, our staff editions are, are, are shorter um, uh, episodes that are meant for your staff. And you can have this episode played during one of your staff meetings to to make sure that they're fully educated on on how to handle uh, pharmacy issues. And then the surveyors are also going to ask if there's any evidence or going to look for any evidence in the medical records that they review for verbal orders being followed up with a written order. So that was a very quick overview of the regulations re- related to uh, uh, to pharmacy. And Sue, so during the Massachusetts State Association meeting, I had an opportunity to interview uh, Victor Alves, uh, who is a pharmacy consultant out of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, he's a great friend of ours. He's been on the podcast before. And uh, he did a session on, you know, top citations or, or you know, current citations that are being found uh, during surveys. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. We talked a little bit about what's happening in the, uh, in the amateur surgery industry related to pharmacy. So let's, uh, let's listen to that interview now. So this is John Gailey. I'm here at the Northeast ASC Conference in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, and I'm here with Victor Alves. Uh, Victor, you and I have uh, spoken before. You were uh, I met you during the pandemic, during one of our uh, our virtual conferences there, and uh, you would take care of a number of our clients uh, throughout the country. So you're about to do a speech. As we're recording this, you haven't done it yet, and I'm trying to jet out. So thank you for taking the time beforehand. So Victor's uh, uh, session is on how to ace, I think it says how to ace your next survey. And of course, you're talking about pharmacy in particular. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Tell me a little bit about what you're going to speak on. So thank you, John, for, for having me. It's, um, it's a pleasure to speak with you and, uh, and to tell you a little bit about the topic today. We are talking about the, uh, the most common survey deficiencies mm-hmm. uh, and, and how facilities can work to minimize their risks and keep their patients safe, which obviously leads to great surveys. So we're going to talk about uh, the usual things that uh, when it comes to medication management, safe medication management, and mm-hmm. so uh, safe injection practices. We're going to talk about uh, how to handle multi-dose, single-dose vials, uh, look-alike, sound-alike uh, medications or the confused drug names as they're now referred to, uh, high-alert medications. Uh, one of the topics I'm going to spend a little bit of time on uh, is a hot topic, has been for, for a number of years now, as well as diversions and, and how mm, to minimize yeah. your risk when it comes to controlled substances. And then we're going to talk a little bit about disposal of medications as well. And um, and so that's um, that's a lot of things in, in one short uh, yeah. one short talk. But, uh, we're and, of course, we only have 15 minutes, whereas you got 30 at, at 60. So That's right. So let, let's talk about uh, safe injection practices first. Obviously, one of the hot topics for surveys. And what are you seeing out there and what can they do to prepare? So uh, it's the usual things when it comes to, to handling the, uh, the multi-dose vials, uh, multi-dose or single-dose vials. Uh, making sure that we're labeling them properly, yeah. not only putting a label on them, but also uh, clearly delineating that that's a beyond use date or yeah. an expiration date on the vial. Uh, that happens uh, quite a bit. Uh, either vials not labeled or vials labeled with just a date. And we don't really know whether that's an open date, an expiration yeah. date, a, or technically a beyond use date. And so making sure that facilities understand properly using uh, multi-dose vials when it comes to the patient care areas versus medication preparation areas. Right. Uh, any any vial, of course, that's used in a uh, patient care area should become dedicated to that patient and become single patient only. 
things that you uh, often see and, and it will not surprise anybody to hear that anesthesia carts are a great place to find some of these uh, hidden yeah, treasures yeah. of, uh, of uh, non-compliance. And, and so it's usually easy because that. they leave them unlocked. So, <laughs> <laughs> Which is an additional, you know, we'll get to, right. you know, we'll, we'll discuss that during the control substance uh, portion. But uh, anesthesia is easy to pick on, uh, but uh, but it happens throughout the facility, of course, and nursing is, uh, is, is responsible for dating as well of the vials. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we'll talk about proper handling of those, how to, how to use single-dose vials, and of course, making sure that we're not using single-dose vials for multiple patients, patients yeah. and, and that happens as well, too. And, and that's an immediate jeopardy issue. People need to realize that that's taken very seriously during a survey. There, there are many aspects of, of what we're going to talk about that are, when it comes to medication management, that could be immediate jeopardy. And, yeah. uh, and I, I think a lot of times it's taken for granted that it's not a big deal, but in fact, it is a big deal, not right. only from patient safety standpoint, but from a survey standpoint. What do you think in terms of multi-dose vials? Is there, you know, there's been challenges lately with the supply chain, being able to get the right size, you know, bottles. Any movement on this or is there any attempt on the part of the vendors to make reasonable size vials and uh, make it so, single dose? Yeah, so the, the, the drug shortages um, have played an important role in, in patient safety and, and certainly uh, COVID has not helped the situation. We've seen uh, multiple incidents of errors being reported as a result of people finding workarounds to, yeah. you know, to the drug shortages. I, I put out a newsletter on a frequent basis, and in one of those uh, newsletters that I I, I try to to address. Uh, drug shortages. And, and one of the things that we've noticed is that the list keeps on growing. Yeah. And so uh, as a result, there's always something, whether it's a, because of a recall or because of uh, increased uh, supply d- demand or factory being shut down. We know we uh, rely on uh, many countries for our medications, China being one of them. Right. Uh, factories being shut down. We saw this with uh, with Contrast Media. If a factory is shut down, we can't get a supply. There's mm-hmm. also distribution issues. If you've gone to the supermarket and noticed that the shelves are empty, that happens with drugs as well, too. Yeah. And so getting them to, to the centers has been has been an issue. Of course, cost has been an issue as yeah. a result of that. So so there have been a lot of different, different um, difficult pain points when it comes to that. And ultimately, uh, it has led facilities to find workarounds. Now, if they've got a good consultant pharmacist who can guide them on safely doing that, they can find ways to sort of mitigate that that mm-hmm. uh, that need uh, while also you know minimizing their risk. Not all facilities do that, and and again, um, you know, working with somebody who's expert in that area can can go a long way to to, to sort of um, help them do that in a in an efficient and safe way. Well, we need to make it clear too that. Uh, you can't go to a surveyor and say, well, the reason I'm using this multi-dose, this uh, single-dose vial on multiple patients is to save money or because I can't get the product. That is not going to fly in a survey. That's still going to get you cited for that. I, I absolutely agree. And yeah. I think that uh, ultimately you have to you have to make every decision. And, and this sounds sort of, you know, like I'm, I'm preaching from, from the soapbox, but you have to make every decision based on uh, patient safety first. Right. And Correct. so if you take the patient's uh, well-being uh, and, and at, at, at heart and, and look at that uh, as first and foremost on your list of, you know, critical checkoffs before you make a decision, I think ultimately that'll that'll pay off. And so at the very bottom of that list should be the financial implication, right? Absolutely. Uh, of course, cost is always an issue and we need to consider that, but we can't say cost first and patient safety yeah. second. And so when it comes to whether it's multiple dose vials, single dose vials, regardless of what it is during a shortage, um, the workaround has to be safe, number one, and then if it's cost, cost effective, then of course that helps as well. And, and, of course, and that's, that's one, another reason why 
working with an expert will help you sort of navigate that that territory. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult and it's it's dynamic, right? It's never the same. Resolving drug shortage A is almost never the same as resolving drug shortage number two, yeah. right? They're all independently, uh, they're different, whether it was yeah. because, again, of a recall or a factory that's shut down, the type of drug that it is, how it's supplied normally, um, what your potential workarounds are. All of those things impact how you deal with the next drug shortage, and that's why they're not always the same. Well, let me put my pitch in. Uh, you know, th- there are some states out there that don't even require, you know, a pharmacy consultant. I, I want to put a pitch in because I, I feel so passionate about this, the need to have a pharmacy consultant, whether you're required to have it or not, and also to consider regular visits, not just like semi-annual or annual visits, even if they're not required. Um, I, I feel that a good pharmacy consultant like you are um, is, is actually going to save the center money and more importantly might bring things to, to their attention, might be able to find sources of drugs or alternative drugs uh, that they weren't able to get, you know, and, and think about the impact. You're saving money. Uh, and more importantly, you're reducing the risk that you're going to have to cancel cases because you don't have the right drugs. Of so course. And, that's my pitch. And I appreciate that. And, and most of the clients that I actually work with are not required to have a consultant pharmacist. Yeah. They do it out of being proactive uh, from a patient safety right. standpoint, from a from a <clears throat> minimizing risk standpoint for themselves. Uh, litigation, of course. Yeah. Uh, Laurie mentioned a brilliant quote earlier today in, uh, in her speech about... Um, you know, if you think that compliance is expensive, try non-compliance. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I don't know who that's attributed to, but yeah, it's an excellent quote, one. and it's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's um, it's one of those things that for the facilities that are proactive, and, and mm-hmm. you know, obviously my clients are, there are many facilities out there that are proactive. Uh, they're working ahead of, of the curve. And yes, it costs you a little bit of money up front to, to work on having solid compliance in place. Yeah. But in the end, the amount of money that that saves you from a potential patient harm standpoint is um, it, it far outweighs the, that cost. Absolutely. And so, uh, so the the um, the facilities that are that are you know thinking ahead and and, and sort of um, planning for the future and are not too short sighted about you know spending uh, a few hundred dollars on a particular uh, cost will uh, set themselves up uh, nicely for uh, for success not only with patient safety but of course from a regulatory standpoint uh, when their surveys come around. Right. One of my favorite topics is a surveyor, look-alike, sound-alike, but now I have to get used to the term confused drug names. Last, it was so much easier for me. Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you got to talk to your, your uh, pharmacy associations here that make this easier for us. The, uh, so, confused drug names, wow. But anyway, talk a little bit about what's going on with that. So this was uh, a decision that I, I don't particularly like. Um, I, I happen to think that look-alike, sound-alike is a better descriptor of what yeah. we're dealing with. Uh, look-alike, sound-alike um, is, is pretty easy to understand. It's medications that either look-alike or sound-alike, uh, either on, on paper or when we speak Verbally, them, yeah. versus confused drug names. And I actually have in my presentation today some examples of drugs that don't look alike and don't sound alike, but there are potential issues with packaging that make them potential hazards. Um, And and so uh, they're not confused drug names at all. In fact, in some cases, it's the same drug, but in different packages. And so that can cause a safety issue. And we're going to talk about the, you know, the the ways that that can cause issues. So I think that um, a better, uh, the better terminology, again, my opinion is look alike, sound alike, because it's more inclusive of all of the 
potential uh, issues that we run into because not all of the drugs that we run into in, in, in this category are confused drug names. They're, they're often not confused at all from a, from a written standpoint or from a spoken standpoint. Some are, but not all of them. And so I think lookalike, soundalike is, is more inclusive. Uh, I think it's okay, in, in my opinion, for if facilities want to include both terms in, in their policies and That's in, what in we're their practice. Recommend. Yeah, that is Be- what we're recommending. Because now. that way it sort of meets the expectation of, of the quote-unquote new terminology, but it also still keeps the old terminology, which we're all familiar with. And quite frankly, we all know that we see these the labels, the look-alike, sound-alike labels everywhere. Yeah. We're not going to replace those with, you know, confused drug name yeah. labels. Uh, can't, can't quite fit it onto it's the... Not the, as, the it's the, not as catchy and it's, yeah. not, uh, it's not as easy to, uh, to, to put on there. Yeah. So another one of my hot topics right now is I, I'm going into centers and seeing, um, you know, I, I'll open up or I'll look into... I, I don't go into it, but I, I look inside the Sharps container and there's full syringes of propofol. Mm-hmm. Just drives me nuts. Talk a little bit about what uh, what's happening there and the uh, the potential problems. So one of the things that uh, I speak to my facilities about all the time is proper disposal of medications, yeah. and, and and that includes regular medications, controlled substances, and, and hazardous medications as well. You need to have a system in place for all of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the first and foremost is to not to not use the Sharps container for disposal. Right. I always joke that it's a Sharps container for Sharps, not for medications. If it was for medications, it would be called a medication container. Yeah. And so I tell my facilities they need to have a system in place. Usually one of the charcoal-based products to, to use mm-hmm. for disposal, they should expel the syringe. The syringe then goes in the Sharps container. It should be empty, which going in the Sharps container should be yeah. empty. We know that, and these products aren't that expensive. Yeah, they're relatively cheap and um, and and easy to use. Right, and and so they even it, a doctor could figure it out. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it's not it's not that difficult. And so um, I, I you know the the, the joke is that uh, even anesthesia, if anesthesia can figure it out. We can we can all figure it out. And and I say that you know I kid as I always say because I love um, have uh, have a lot of friends and, and colleagues that are that are uh, practicing in in that field and um, and they often ask about that. And so that's mm-hmm. a great it's a great question. It's something that facilities need to have a system in place for. Uh, they need to be cautious of all medications, uh, especially controlled substances. And, yeah. and, you know, you and I would never think of um, going into a Sharps container for anything, right. period, end, right. of, end of paragraph. But there have been instances, there reported instances of, of people going into Sharps containers to, to then use divert medications that have been partially used. And, uh, yeah. and again, the infection control standpoint uh, is something we can talk about for, for days on end. It's a, yeah. it's a non-starter for, for anybody in the healthcare field. But... For somebody who's desperate, for somebody who's looking to to divert medications, it's a perfectly good opportunity. And so yeah. it has happened, it continues to happen, and that's why we need to educate facilities on properly disposing of medications. That segues nicely to our last topic, which is diversion. Um, I will say, and I think you and I have spoken about this, that we've seen, uh, even among our 70 clients, an increase in the number of diversions by the least likely people in the center and unfortunately, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that uh, we're, we're telling people you got to keep an eye out for. Um, and we're not talking, you know, we're not talking small centers here either. You know, though it happens to small centers too. It happens, you know, no matter how strong your controls are. So talk a little bit about the challenges that we're dealing with with diversions now. Yeah, so diversions are impacting everybody. And it's one of the things I'll be speaking about today. And, um, and it's, it's great that you mentioned uh, the, the small centers one of the things I mentioned in my talk today is don't think that just because you have not been impacted by a diversion that it will never hit you right. or that that because you're a small center, we only have a staff of X, right? It's a small staff. We all know each other. We go to each other's, you yeah. know, christenings and, and whatever uh, other events. 
it's not going to happen here. We're all equally susceptible to it. Yeah. Of course, facilities with more moving parts have more potential for things to go wrong. But all of these facilities need to worry about the potential for diversion. So having systems in place for how do we order medications? How do we store them? How do we mm-hmm. uh, distribute them throughout the center throughout the day? How do we document that? Uh, how do we dispose of them, as we just talked about? All of those things need to be in place. Systems need to be in place so that come the end of the day, you're able to track, or any part of the day, really, you should be able to track your controlled substances down to one single tablet or you know one yeah. single dosage form. Um, and follow up on any any discrepancies immediately while people are still remembering it. Exactly. I tell facilities uh, at the very latest, and of course you're not going to wait, you should not wait, but at the very latest, by the end of shift, you need to figure out what went wrong and and what happened so that you have uh, a plan in place for moving forward because you may in fact have a legitimate diversion that you need to act upon. Or most of the time, what you have, and I don't want people to get complacent because this is the majority of the time, you have a math issue. Somebody yeah, put down a, yeah. a, a one instead of a two, or maybe it was a one instead of a 10, or vice versa. And so the numbers are off, and then when you do the math, you figure out that it was just a mathematical error. But I don't want people to find complacency in that and, and say, most of the time it's math, so we don't need to worry about it. You do. You need to use the math first to, to, to save you, hopefully. Yeah. But if it's not a math issue and you really have a diversion, you then need to have systems in place as to how do you report it within your structure, within right. your, your management structure? How do you report it to your state, to the DEA? All of those systems need to be in place so that don't wait for the diversion to happen to then say, what do we do? And certainly I get a lot of calls when it comes to that kind of thing because not everybody has all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And so I get the panic call of, Victor, I think we, we have a diversion, what do we do? And so at that point, it's much more difficult if you don't have a system in place than if you do have a system because if you have a system, you start going through your list of what do we need to do first and second mm-hmm. and so forth. If you don't, then it's a little bit more of a, of a fire drill, but we get through it. And, uh, and it's one of the things that, you know, that I help my clients with. But the things that I like to uh, help most with is being proactive, being prepared, not waiting for things to go wrong to then fix them. Let's, let's right. be proactive and, and set up systems ahead of time. So diversions are certainly in the news um, every single day. Um, you know, we hear people ask the question about um, or, or say that somebody, everybody knows somebody who's been affected by yeah. whether it's fentanyl or one of the other um, controlled substances. And so it's very similar for the ASCs. If you have not been impacted by a diversion, you know somebody who's been impacted yeah. by a diversion. So don't wait for it to happen to you to, to then develop systems. And don't assume all the time that it's not uh, not an actual diversion when you have a discrepancy. You know, investigate it as though every one of them could potentially be that. Absolutely. Um, I, I always say start with the math, but you have to start immediately and, and, mm-hmm. and try to mitigate the risk if, if there is an actual diversion going in place. Of course, you want to minimize the loss. And so... That requires immediate action and, um, and and following a stepwise you know approach to be um, you know to be comprehensive. Victor, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much, and uh, good luck in your speech. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. And our ASC Administrators Boot Camp for Administrators Ambulatory Surgery Centers and those looking to become CAS certified uh, will be January 24th through the 27th, 2023. For more information about that and all the benefits of uh, joining on our boot camp, 
uh, visit ASCPodcast.com. And Ask Us 2023 Winter Seminar is January 12th through the 14th at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'll be heading out there to do a whole morning on uh, finance and accounting. There's kind of like a mini boot camp, I would say, for uh, finance and accounting at that conference. So for more information on ASCA 2023's Winter Seminar, visit ASCAssociation.org. AORN's Global Surgical Conference and Expo 2023 is April 1st through the 4th at the Henry B. Gonzalez Convention Center in San Antonio, Texas. And ASCA 2023 Conference and Expo is May 17th through the 20th, 2023 at the Kentucky International Convention Center in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'll be doing, I think, three uh, speeches there, and, uh, and Lori will be down there also with us, as well as quite a number of staff from the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies Group. So definitely visit ASCAssociation.org to sign up for ASCA 2023. And also, don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have a credentialing conference that we recorded in 2020. It was a full-day conference talking about how to do credentialing, provider credentialing in an ambulatory surgery center. And then in uh, fall of 2022, we did a finance, accounting, and reimbursement conference, which is now available. We also did a uh, conditions for coverage conference. The recording's available uh, for uh, we recorded that in 2021. It's a really good conference, Sue. Right for uh, explaining the all of the conditions for coverage. We're we're going to uh, have to re-record that soon. And then also in 2021, we did a medical director conference, which talked uh, to medical directors about the responsibilities that they have, particularly uh, during a survey and, and what their responsibilities are as a medical director. And don't forget about our on-demand version of our director of nursing and administrators boot camps. Those are uh, newly revised, and they're available on our website at ASCPodcast.com. And again, let's remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. Patron members help support our efforts here in maintaining this free podcast. And for uh, $25 a month, you get a whole host of uh, benefits. The patron program is also known as ASC Central. As we indicated, there is a brand new website for it. Uh, and it's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. The uh, resources that are available include virtual conferences, links to various resources, policies and procedures, forms, drills, uh, and other information, as well as access to free AEU credits just for listening to the podcast. And probably the most important part and the, the benefit that everybody seems to enjoy is those Saturday drop, drop-in sessions where you can uh, meet uh, via a private Zoom link uh, with other patron members and talk about things that are going on. We usually talk at least an hour, sometimes an hour and a half uh, every Saturday morning. It's not every single Saturday, but uh, it certainly has been for at least the last couple months. And membership does help defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and the production costs. And for more information, of course, you can visit ASCPodcast.com. And that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gale. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. 
This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.